our lives and over our city and over our world. How does that conversation still go? Right? It's pretty interesting. I, I think that if some of you, some of you have been followers of Jesus for a lot longer, a few decades, you've noticed, you've watched in your lifetime that there's been a, really a, te- a tectonic shift, right? Into how people respond to the idea of church and Christianity and things like that. And really, it's been a huge shift in our society and our culture. It's what sociologists call a shift from Christian culture to a post-Christian culture. It's what's happening. It's what's happened. And by that, I don't mean a Christian nation. I mean, we've had that conversation already before. Um, The word Christian is not, I mean, it's a noun. It's not an adjective. So people are Christian. Like, nations aren't Christian. Um, And so primarily because uh, that kind of thinking we have, our culture is actually, um, our culture has been Christianized, okay? Um, Ever since the founding of the nation, right? There's been some bits of of Christian Bible things mixed in with more secular ideas and and concepts. And um, And so when that happens, actually there's something, there's a word for that. It's called Christendom. Christendom started, historically, started back in 330 A.D. And this is a guy named Constantine. It came with the Edict of Milan. Constantine was um, an emperor of Rome, and he did this really brilliant political move. See, for a while, the Christian uh, the followers of Jesus were a dinky minority starting out as 120 people in a room in Jerusalem after Jesus' resurrection. Dinky minority. And after a few hundred years, uh, the, the followers of Jesus just exploded. It exploded all through, and we can witness it through the writings of Paul and, and the history of the book of Acts and all of that. We can see the beginnings of this start to take shape. And And Emperor Constantine was actually brilliant. He's very political. He's very self-aware and aware of his situation. He realized that this dinky minority had now become a majority in the Roman Empire. And so he began to latch onto that. He actually made Christianity the state religion, which many of us believe was the worst thing that could have happened. It actually did some damage to what it looked like to subversively follow Jesus in a, in a non, um, in, an, in an emperor culture and all that kind of stuff. And so um, he makes Christianity the default religion. And, and over years, thousands of, a thousand years or so, the Christianity becomes kind of intermeshed with society in the state. And it has enormous effect on history going forward. Even after Europe, okay, there was, there was many state religions all over Europe, different versions of Protestantism or Catholicism or things like that. And then even when you, when you fast forwarded to America starting up, there was no um, uh, state religion in America, but there was a de facto religion of Christianity in America. And what slowly began to change over the 17th and 18th centuries after the Age of Enlightenment was this idea that there was this pushback to some key assumptions of Christendom. You know, that mixing of Christianity and culture. 
All that to say, in the last two or three decades, there has been a huge shift in how Christianity is viewed and even practiced in America. Huge shift. And now there is no doubt that while the way of Jesus is exploding in so many different places in the world, that here in America, particularly in the West and in America, it's in decline. And we are now officially full-on living in a post-Christian world. So you're, if, you're, if you're bummed by that, if that like really makes you mad inside, I want you to, <laughs> I want you to just hang on. And I'm hopefully going to give you some things that um, that will help you through the journey. Because there's a pastor actually in New York City named John Tyson who who wrote a bunch about this, and he looked at three cultural shifts that have changed the topography of Christianity in the West, okay? So we're going to do some, like, nerdy sociology stuff. I trust you. Trust me. There's going to be the Bible here shortly, okay? This is just orienting us to where we're at, say. So for Christians, we've gone from a majority culture to a minority culture, okay? That's just the reality of it. For the first time in American history, this is stats. This is... This is um, all the work that's been done behind the scenes, Protestant Christians are no longer a majority in the U.S. The fastest growing religion in the United States, does anybody know what it is? The nuns. The nuns, and the nuns are those who check the box unaffiliated. Spiritual, yes. Nuns. Not, come on. I mean, you see monasteries and stuff popping up? <laughs> Nuns. <laughs> Man, they're making a comeback. The flying, what was the flying nun? What was that? Like this, yeah. Sorry, everybody. People who say none next to religious affiliation. <sighs> Let's pray. It's becoming more and more rare to find people who follow Jesus. The other shift is from the center of culture to the fringe, okay? So not only is majority to minority, but from the center of culture to the fringe. So the, the idea is behind this is there was once a time when Christians were at the center of cultural movements, academics, art, politics, things like that. And now you'll find it a little bit harder to find that. Last week, I told you the story about my friend who was a pastor for like 40 years. And he remembers in Kansas, he had a pastor discount card. If you guys were here for last week. And um, like that is so like never going to happen right now. Um, this idea that pastors were, were people of high standing and others. So you, every day there seems to be another scandal, another, you know, whatever happening. And then there's this idea of separation of church and state, right? Which, just to remind you, is not in the Constitution. It's in a letter of one of the founding fathers. It's not in the Constitution. And what it is and what it isn't, initially, it was for, to keep the church out of, I mean, the state out of the church, right? Okay? So now, when people say separation of church and state, they're like, well, they mean to keep the church out of the state. So you can see all these changes in ideas. A guy named Lee Beach, I've been quoting him last week and a little bit this week as well. He writes, in the post-Christian revolution, 
It is fair to say that church, those former proud power brokers that once enjoyed a seat at the public table, have been chased away from their place of privilege and are now seeking where it belongs amid the ever-changing dynamics of contemporary culture. So in general rule, there's less credibility, okay? There's, uh, there's less seats at the table for, for people who follow Jesus to be in the public square. And then the final shift that John Tyson, remember he's in New York City, like uh, the mecca of, of, of kind of what this thinking is. Um, he said that uh, we've gone from a well-respected to disrespected. There was a time, even as late as the 90s, that the word Christian actually had a positive connotation. And over time, you know, yeah, it was always weird or maybe a little bit uh, goofy. And people were always, like, impressed with, like, missions work and, wow, you actually have a different sexual ethic. That must be, that's, a, I'm, I'm actually impressed by that. And, and then, and, you know, even five years ago, like, I remember running into someone and they're like, uh, you people still exist? Right? And so... Now a lot has changed. Actually, I think there's actually much more negative connotations with the word Christian. We're lumped in in some circles with ISIS and the Orlando nightclub shooter and Westboro Baptist Church, you know, all the, all the good stuff. You know, on the, on, the, on the soft end, it's like keep it to yourself. And on the more hard, abrasive end, it's like you're actually dangerous. And so much has changed, and it's happened so fast. There's this political theory called the Overton Window. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's actually interesting. The basic idea is this, that when an idea comes into play in society, it starts as unthinkable, and then it moves to becoming just, it's radical. Then it becomes acceptable. Then it becomes sensible. Then it becomes popular then it becomes policy. And I think you and I can think of some things over the last 20 years that moved from unthinkable in our culture to policy, right? And so how did we get here? A couple things changed culture. The first one is this idea of secularization, and I don't want to nerd out on you, but there's just this idea that 500 years ago, it was crazy to think that someone wouldn't believe in God. And now we're at a different place. Now even some of the most devoted followers of Jesus go through real, tangible experiences of intense doubt in their lives. And there's this age we live in of uncertainty and skepticism and secularism, and everything is called into question, and we swim in that culture, right? Uh, Enchantment to disenchantment, some things that we used to uh, the world used to think of, of, of the divine so much and God's providence. And now we live in a, a world that's much more about disenchantment, that all that was a myth and we know better. And there's, we know physics and gravity now, right? And <laughs> um, the only thing that's real is the material, anything you could stick into a microscope. And there's ramifications of that idea in our, in our lives and in our hearts. There's a pollster named... Michael Adams, and he wrote this. I thought this was fascinating. He wrote, from the death of God to the traditional notions of family 
and community to a highly individualistic population focused on personal control and autonomy to a new embryonic but fast-growing sense of human interconnectedness with technology and nature. He's just like, there's this huge shift happening, right? And this is the shift that we're in the middle of. So there's secularization that's part of the shift. The second one, this is really important, is affluence. Affluence has changed us more than you know, more than we realize. Post-World War II, the economic boom, money gave people more options. Uh, the New Testament calls some of our worldly pleasures and options um, as, as like a real thing, a real tangible thing that pulls at us. It makes us a lot less desperate for God. Consumerism, material possessions kill the spiritual hunger and thirst in our culture. And so when you recap all of this, these are pretty heavy things, right? Recap this. Okay, from a majority to a minority culture, from the center to the fringe, from well-respected to disrespected, and there's secularism and affluence, and you're like, why did I come today? Why am I even? This is depressing. All that to say is this. It used to be that Christianity in the West was much different than it is now. Now, if you apprentice Jesus, and if you pattern your life more and more around being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did, okay, then you are more and more in the minority, on the fringe, and thought of as weird or even dangerous. And that's the truth. That's the reality. And we, have a, we live in a different world than grandma and grandpa and their faith. And the reason why I go through all that stuff, okay, is because last week when we talked about the idea of the metaphor and the, the thinking around the word exile, it gives us a little bit more of a, of an idea of what Daniel went through instantaneously. See, you and I have been growing up and living in a subtle change over time. It's like, it's like slowly the temperature of the water has changed. But for Daniel, it happened like this. For Daniel, it happened quick. Look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. And we read this last week. We're going to read it again, partly because I love saying all these Old Testament names. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Remember, we talked about the significance of that. Um, and if you want to check that out. Listen from last week. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
the chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. And the story goes on. We're going to get more and more into this. But take a moment to imagine Daniel, 13 to 15 years old, smart from the nobility, okay? Maybe, you know, within the family structure, we don't know, of kingship. And all of a sudden, you're ripped, you're Daniel, you're, you're ripped from your place, you're thrown into a caravan headed to Babylon. You're away from your parents, your family, who knows who survived in your family? You might be deeply mourning the loss or the death or the, uh, of the pain of loved ones. You're ripped from your temple, you're dragged off to Babylon, and you're a good Jewish boy or girl when you're dragged, drug off. And Babylon, in your mind, okay, you've heard of Babylon potentially coming. There's stories swirling about what Babylon is like before they even get there. The, Babylon, in your mind, is an archetype of the hostility and open rebellion against Yahweh, your God. Sexual immorality is the norm. Opulent wealth and injustice everywhere you look. And you're a teenage kid, you're a teenage boy, and you enter this cultural immersion program in Babylon designed to erase your attachments with your God and your people and your way of life and to form you into a Babylonian cultural thought leader. This is like a, an amazing social engineering project by the Babylonians. You are renamed. How in the world do you even survive that, much less stay faithful to God, the God of your people? And as the poet said in scripture, how do we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Right? This is Daniel. And I would argue this is kind of us. And this is his experience in exile. You remember exile from last week, this theme throughout scripture. It starts with Adam and Eve in the garden. It goes all the way through. We talked about Peter writing letters to the, the early Christians saying, to all my exiles, to all my friends scattered around, you are foreigners living here. We even talked about Jesus as our ultimate picture of exile. Now, and we also mentioned this. We also made the case that if you are a follower of Jesus, your felt experience on earth is one of exile. That you are a foreigner here. That your citizenship is somewhere else. Lee Beach writes this. He says, exile, the experience of knowing that one is an alien, perhaps even in a hostile environment. The predominant values run counter to one's own. This sense of exile is experienced by anyone who feels alienated, cast adrift, or marginalized by their inability or unwillingness to conform to the tyranny majority opinion. Right? I mean, think about that idea of the tyranny of public majority opinion, this, this social and emotional pressure to conform to the tyranny public opinion whether it be in consumerism or whatever, let alone just all that pull, um, just be like everyone else, right? 
Just be like everyone else. Vote like everyone else. Act like someone else, everyone else. Think and spend like everybody else around you. It's just so easy to get caught into that. The question is, how do we live in this kind of a cultural moment? How do we do it? And the teaching rhythm we were on last year, we went through the whole first letter of Corinthians. We talked about what does it look like to live as a people of God in community within, inside of a culture that was absolutely, totally different, right? So we talked about this some last year. Then we brought up this idea of what does it look like to actually apprentice Jesus, right? And we patterned it off of how disciples were discipled around Jesus' day. You would be with your rabbi, you would become like your rabbi, and you'd do what your rabbi did. And then we finished last year talking about how the fact is that you and I actually can, we can change. Like we can, we can drastic, we can become transformed people. We can, the spirit can, can change our actual loves and our longings in our lives. So what does it look like to do all of that in the midst of a totally different culture. I think there's two postures we need to avoid. And then we're going to look at how Daniel figured out how to do it. Two postures we need to avoid. The first one is something called separation. Okay, this is, this is like the turtle posture, right? This is the Amish, okay? We think they're adorable, because it's like, oh, they still do the wagon thing and they still carve things and whatever. <laughs> but here's the thing. Um, the Amish are amazing and, and there's something uh, really idyllic about that. But the frustrating thing is they have actually little to no influence into culture, right? Really don't have this, this avenue where they can, they can change things outside of their world. Something else happened that we, we've, we've seen in America um, is also this idea of fundamentalism. This idea of like, let's hold up. Everybody's, everything's bad. Let's stay away from anybody who's a sinner, right? Let's, let's keep our kids from people who chew. You know, what's the phrase? Chew and, uh, people, and other people who do or whatever. I mean, anyway, <laughs> that, that, I don't know. There was a phrase out there. But then there's like, even, even on a softer version, this idea of like this kind of this mega church idea, right? So, like, we have a mega church, we have our own coffee shop in our mega church, and we have our own school in our mega church, and everything can happen here in this Christian world, right? Now, here's, here's the thing we need to start asking. I mean, I started asking myself this question a couple years ago because as a pastor, I end up meeting with a lot of people who are either uh, following Jesus or trying to figure out how to follow Jesus and I really don't get out of like that third or fourth layer of people in society, in our world, right? It's really hard, especially when they find out I'm a pastor. They don't have anything to do with me. So one of the things I realize is I've got to get involved in different people's lives in our city. And, and one of the ways I could do that was uh, jumping into the police department and be a police chaplain. And I've gotten to ride with officers and get to know people who are a little, a lot farther away from Jesus, than I normally do. And here's the thing. We have to ask ourselves questions like, if everyone in your life is a Christian, like your dentist is a Christian and your mechanic's a Christian and like everybody you do life with is a Christian, you're separating yourself. 
And um, it's not the way forward. I believe that the church's retreat from culture is actually one of the many reasons we're in the place we're in today. Second thing is, is, and I don't think a lot of us struggle with this really. I think the next one is really where we struggle, and that's syncretism. So two things to avoid, separating yourself off, okay, and, and, and then just becoming, blending in and going with the flow and, and eventually just disappearing in culture. Most of us deal with this more. Beginning of this comes out of Germany. It's the birthplace of something called theological liberalism. And, and, and Germany is now a church graveyard. And a lot has happened there. There's um, mainline denominations have, have, have begun to become more empty. Uh, writers and bloggers and podcasters who are really interested in just de- deconstructing the church. And there's, there's a lot of that. When I say the word liberalism, I don't mean pol- political liberalism. Um, I actually have the belief that both parties in a two-party system um, can't capture, no one can capture the heart of Jesus. So... If you think your party captures the heart of Jesus, I will destroy you. Um, I really will. I don't care. I don't care what you think. I will just rip you apart on that one. That's another conversation. Um, but I mean liberalism in the moral and um, theological sense. This idea that that a rejection of and a, a disloyalty to Jesus and, and Jesus's teachings, uh, syncretism has a far bigger hold on us in our city. I believe than anything else, and um, and and many of you really you're you're not struggling with legalism, right? You're struggling with more of syncretism, right? Like just uh, you know, Denver is. We're going to talk about this down the road. Den- there's two types of power. There's hard power and soft power. Denver is soft power, meaning it's like this. Um, it doesn't beat you up and it doesn't persecute you. It just says, it's just really seductive, right? It just says, no, have another beer. You know, buy another property. Um, you know, find another brunch spot instead of going to church. It's just soft power, right? And so what's the better response, Ryan? You just seem so down today. Well, I'm just trying to set things up, right? I actually think a better way forward is something called being a creative minority. I know that sounds like a, that's something you probably have never heard before, and I hadn't either, there's this historian named, uh, let me get his name right, Arnold Toynbee. And there's this other guy named Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And Rabbi Jonathan Sachs wrote an article talking about charting the rise and fall of civilizations. And you can, you can chart them on a bell curve, right? And he says that um, a lot of civilizations actually can survive. They don't actually have to rise and then fall and die. A lot of civilizations can actually survive if there's within it a creative minority, meaning a people who actually adapt and innovate and stick together, no matter how everything is swirling differently around them. And he points to the Jewish people as the main, uh, like throughout history, 2.5 millennia, the Jewish people have actually been surviving and thriving as a minority, as a creative minority, meaning he, he calls it like this. All the people that the Jews like fought and did all this stuff in the Old Testament. There's no more Philistines. There's no more Hittites. There's no more Babylonians. There's no more Romans, right? But the Jewish people are still around. Why is that? Why is that? 
even though they are a minority, they are a creative minority and not a destructive minority. So they, they've played a part in the influence of culture. So here's John Tyson again. Listen to this. I'm just setting up an idea for us. A Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships, right? Knotted together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. People who are committed, who are knotted together, who are, who are like fiercely loyal together, together, committed to practicing the way of Jesus for what? The renewal of the world. Not for themselves, but for the world. Notice that a creative minority, is not a, it's not an idea or an ideology. It's like a, a people empowered by the spirit for work in the world, right? It's, it's not staying away and separate. It's actually engaging. But here's the problem. To live in the, to live in the middle is not easy. It's really difficult. And this is where Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says, and I'll get to the point here in a second. He says, to become a creative minority is not easy. I just said that. Thanks, Jonathan. Because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith. Seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. This is, as Jews can testify, a demanding and risk-laden choice. Right? Engaging in the larger world, right? And still staying true to uh, your community and your faith. Honestly, the church's track record here is not really good. It's not good. You know why? Because it's really hard. It's really hard to do. It's really hard being, like, to not be sucked into the orbit of culture and yet at the same time starting some commune where we churn our own butter and just listen to Chris Tomlin all day, right? <laughs> like, like what's, what do, what's the middle ground? Churn, fresh butter's great. Chris Tomlin's got some hits. I'm, I'm all for it. But here's the thing, like, how do we remain in the world, right, and not a product of it? How do we maintain our citizenship and be people of the future and yet be faithful, faithful here as foreigners? How do we do it? My hope is that we will see that through the book of Daniel, there's actually a way forward in this. Like Daniel is all about this task and it gets messy being a minority in a major majority culture that is hostile to your way of life, that is actually angry with you just for saying a few things or, or believing a few things, uh, not only survive distinction, right, like an extinction, but actually to thrive in exile is what we're all about. And here's what I love. Jeremiah 29, read a little bit of it last week. This helps us to navigate, right, because this is the letter that, that Daniel read when he's in exile, when he's the beginning of his exile. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those, I, I love this, I have carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses. So they're probably having some questions like, should we build houses? Jeremiah's like, yep, you should. 
Um, should we settle down or make this more of a temporary stay? He says, nope, settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. What about our kids? Should they marry and have sons? And Yep, they should. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number, do not decrease. Like his plan is actually have kids. How long will I be here? What are we doing? Verse 7, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is, this is brutal for them. They just killed a whole bunch of our people, destroyed our temple, destroyed our city, took all of our, our, our worship artifacts into their temple, and you're telling us to pray for them? That's like, so a little bit over a year ago, about a year ago, actually almost exactly a year ago, I shared a little bit of this with some of you, um, and I, I got an email from somebody very high up in the city telling us to remove our church sign from Wadsworth. Remember we had that big sign we used to roll out there? And I'm not going to get into all of it, but there was a part of me that was like about to, I don't know, get like, get all legal, you know? That like this is like they're they're trying to hurt this church and this is like a our rights are involved here. Like I was there's part of me that wanted to get real crazy and mean. And I started thinking about all these things that have been floating around in my head. Pray for your city. We came to a resolution on it. As you can tell, we have smaller signs, but the, the, <laughs> but we can have signs. Woo! So, um, but I think we're actually in a really good place with this city now. Verse 8, it says, Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to them, their dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. And then verse 10, it says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years, this is that idea of how long, right? When 70 years are completed for, uh, for Babylon, I will come uh, to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans, this is the graduation verse. <laughs> for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations. The places I have banished you. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Gosh, man. Most of the time when you got carried off into exile, when your God was defeated by some other God, your God lost. Your God was nowhere to be found. In the ancient Near East, that's how it was. And God says, when you call on me, 
in Babylon. When you seek me, you will find me. You seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you. And here's what I love about Daniel's worldview. Listen to this. Daniel chapter 9, we're totally fast-forwarding. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of who? The Lord given by Jeremiah. See, we know for a fact that Jeremiah's letter to Daniel was a, was a blueprint of how to survive exile he said that the desolation of Israel would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Point is, not only had Daniel read this letter, but more than likely it generated his entire approach to life in exile. It gave him a framework. And so as we end... So we intro this idea of being a creative minority. We're going to talk about this in weeks to come. For this morning, I just want to let that sink in to us. So we need to face the reality that in the West has changed, that, that we're on the outside now, and that's okay. You're weird if you follow Jesus. Own it. Own it. When you say that Jesus is more than just a ticket to heaven and, and you live however, you know, and, and a ticket to heaven and just living however you want now, it, it, following Jesus is more than that. You believe that Jesus is back from the dead, that there is a whole new world here and a whole new world that is coming, and that belief has changed everything. That is not normal saying, I believe Jesus' teaching offer a better vision of the good life and I have devoted my life to being with Jesus and becoming like Jesus and doing what Jesus did in community with others who are trying to do the same thing. That is not normal. And we seek the renewal and the healing of our city. Listen, historically, exile is where followers of Jesus are at their best. They're at their best. Because we have to be creative and innovative and we have to, we have to love differently. We, we, we have to engage. Listen, if you're here and you're just struggling and you got caught up in the cultural wars that happened over the last few decades, I just need to lovingly tell you something. They're over and we lost. Like royally. And you need to let that, let that just sink in a bit. And good things are coming from exile. So don't, you know, if you need to grieve that, I get it. But don't play the victim card of that. Like, don't get angry. The last place anger should be is in a community that follows Jesus. That's not our place. Good things come from exile. Our job is to innovate. Our job is to adapt. Our job is to change. There's a new cultural moment here call, causing followers of Jesus to be creative, a new way to do church, a new way to seek the good of the city. And here's what can emerge as I finish. What can emerge is a tight-knit community practicing the way of Jesus in holiness, right? 
as a set-apart people intentionally seeking ways to be a blessing to the community that we're in, citizens of the kingdom and foreigners here. What I'm asking you is, that, are you willing to take that journey? Because next week we're going to begin to dig into the specifics of what Daniel hit, and it's the same things we're hitting too. If you need to process this with people, if you need to like process, if you need to send me a big long email or whatever, <laughs> like if we need to have that conversation, that's fine. Like I want that conversation. That's where we're at our best, right? But I'm going to pray and we're going to sing one more song. And then I'm going to send us off with a prayer of hope.